Last week we talked about the nuclear war film Threads and I mentioned that milk appears often in the film. I think it's because milk symbolises health and wholesomeness and the routines of ordinary life. Setting the breakfast table, making the tea, collecting the milk bottles from the doorstep, etc. But one of my Facebook followers made the good point that perhaps we see bottles and glasses of milk and the old clinking milk floats so often because milk is something which features prominently after nuclear disaster. In incidents like Windscale, Chernobyl, Fukushima, milk is tested, often found to be contaminated, and has to be disposed of. So today we're going to look at nuclear disaster and milk. Specifically, we'll look at the Windscale nuclear accident which happened in Britain in October 1957. First, why milk? Surely when radioactive fallout is drifting and descending, it will touch everything. It will contaminate potatoes and carrots and it will land on sheep and pigs. So why is it cows and their milk which seem to get it? Well, there are several reasons. The first is quite simply speed. Yes, the radioactivity might well land on and contaminate a potato crop, but potatoes take ages to grow. So by the time they're out of the ground, sent out for sale and are on your dinner plate, a lot of the radioactive material will have had time to decay. Not so with milk, which is produced and turned around super fast. Cows eat the contaminated grass and are then milked, The milk is speedily processed and sent out to the shops. It has to be done quickly, of course, because milk goes sour, doesn't it? So no other product is produced and distributed and consumed so fast, leaving little time for the radioactive bodies to decay. There's also the horrible fact that children drink more milk than adults, and they and their Small, growing bodies are, of course, particularly vulnerable. Now let's take a quick look at the 1957 Windscale Fire, Britain's worst nuclear accident. If you want a brilliant read on the incident and all other nuclear horrors, disasters and oddities. I recommend Fallout by Fred Pierce, a brilliant book. If you look at my YouTube channel, also called The Atomic Hobo, I did a video about the book a few weeks ago. I love it. And that will be my source for much of this podcast as we look at Windscale. So, what happened there? Of course, before we go on, let me just remind you that Windscale was later renamed Sellafield, and that's how most people might think of it now. Windscale was built because the Americans cut us off. 
British scientists, of course, had worked with America on the Manhattan Project, developing the first atomic bomb. But then, after the war, the Americans got a bit precious and decided they wanted to keep all this juicy nuclear knowledge to themselves. So the British were sent home, kicked out of their nuclear work, forbidden from talking to their American colleagues, and told to go home and forget everything they knew. So much for the special relationship. This was all done under the 1946 McMahon Act, which ended all nuclear collaboration. So Britain decided, well, if we're being cut out, we need to just build our own nuclear bomb. We've got the knowledge after all, we've got the experts, and we've, so we kept telling ourselves, got the need for it, as we are still a big and important country who merits a seat at the top table. The one thing we didn't have, however, was material to go in the bomb. We needed plutonium. And so we needed a nuclear reactor, known here as a pile, to make the stuff. In 1952, then, the wind piles were up and working and delivered their first baby, a nice bouncing bundle of plutonium, and it was used to detonate Britain's first atomic bomb. But there was little room for celebration because the nuclear powers, America and the Soviet Union, had by this time already moved on and were now playing with hydrogen bombs, which, as we know, make atomic bombs look like whoopee cushions. So the windscale guys were told, get back to work, we need one of those hydrogen bombs too. But there was a slight problem. Much of the hydrogen bomb work had been done after the Brits had been kicked out of America. So with Harold Macmillan now in charge in Britain, he was urging things along. He was worried that a test ban might arise, which would prevent them from building and then, of course, testing their own hydrogen bomb. He also, according to the Fred Pierce book, entertained pleasant dreams that if we could only get a hydrogen bomb, America would once again take us seriously and resume nuclear collaboration. So there was huge pressure on the wind-scale scientists to start producing a lot of plutonium. Politics was trying to rush science along when it shouldn't be rushed. Now, the two piles at Windscale, the reactors, each had a gigantic oven and you would load cans of uranium into them and start a nuclear reaction. The cans sat inside graphite, which acted as a moderator, meaning it would help slow down the speed of the reaction. But the heat generated was still spectacular so huge fans were installed to keep the gigantic chimneys cool. Pierce's book likens them to aircraft propellers, which blasted air up through the huge chimneys. Let me read an extract from Fred Pierce's excellent book, Fallout, which explains where the danger lay with Windscale. The system was primitive, but it worked. But as demands for more and more plutonium grew through the summer of 1957, The scientists running the piles were in a quandary. They knew that the intense reactions in the pile caused the graphite that contained the uranium to gradually swell and hold energy, known as Wigner energy. Wigner energy was dangerous, could cause a reactor fire. 
So the scientists periodically reduced the swelling by shutting down the piles and allowing the core to heat up gradually, with the cooling fans turned off. This technique for releasing the Wigner energy was potentially dangerous, because too much heat could itself trigger a pile fire. And the longer the delay before each release, the more dangerous it was. To make matters worse, alterations to the pile to manufacture more tritium had created hot spots that were unknown because thermometers inside were in the wrong place. And the piles had no operating manual, with the wind-scale scientists cut off from the expertise of their Hanford cousins Everything had to be done by trial and error. As a rule of thumb, they made Wigner energy releases every 20,000 megawatt days, which meant every few months. But as the leaves began to fall from the trees along the Cumbrian coast that autumn, Macmillan's high diplomacy and Windscale's nuclear science were coming into dangerous conflict. The Site Technical Committee in early September extended the gaps between Wigner releases to 40,000 megawatt days. Previously, as we said there, it was 20,000, so they've doubled the gap. The book goes on to say that on October the 7th, a long-delayed Wigner release began, but the process wasn't working. A scientist tried to kickstart it by applying more heat, and, as Fred Pierce says, he appears to have overdone it. Temperatures inside the reactor began to skyrocket, but nobody noticed. One by one, the cans of uranium began to burst. Again, no one noticed. Alarms which should have gone off didn't go off. In fact, they only realised there was a problem when an air monitor on a nearby building started detecting a hell of a lot of radioactivity belching out from the chimney. And then came the smoke. Reading again from Fred Pierce's book, Fallout, Deputy Works Manager Tom Choi climbed onto the roof of the pile. Peering inside, he was confronted by an inferno. About 120 fuel channels, containing around three tonnes of uranium, were ablaze. So was the graphite. Temperatures inside the pile exceeded 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit, compared with an intended maximum of 400 degrees. The reactor was ablaze and there were no rules for what to do. Now, there is plenty more to be said about the Windscale Fire and the cover-up which followed, and it's all there in the book Fallout by Fred Pierce. And I also recommend Sellafield Stories, which is an oral history of the plant. But let's look at milk. What happened to local production of milk after the Windscale fire poured radiation into the sky? Emergency at Windscale Atom Plant, and the milk from 200 square miles of farmland is condemned as radioactive. Now the worst seems to be over, though Mr. Stan Ritson, who helped to bring Windscale's overheated reactor under control, was radioactive for four days and couldn't even kiss his wife till the Geiger counters gave permission. The farmers carry on as usual, for cows have to be milked, whatever happens to the milk afterwards. You can't explain radioactivity to a cow. 
Well, after Winscale, there was a ban on milk from local farms. The Guardian reports that police went around warning local farmers not to distribute their milk next morning. And a ban on milk meant that safe, clean supplies had to be brought in from outside the forbidden area so that locals could still have their tea and their cornflakes. So milk was being brought in from outside, but what happened to the milk which already existed inside the forbidden area? Well, it was poured into the Irish Sea. Thousands of gallons of the stuff. And of course, cows need to be milked again and again. You can't just do it once after the fire and that's it. So tainted milk kept being produced and it kept being tipped straight into the Irish Sea. I'm surprised the sea didn't turn white and sour and lumpy. The Manchester Guardian spoke to locals about this. One of them said, You never know what's going to happen next, do you? You have to be so careful with these radioactivities. And a farmer from the area who had Frisian cattle, and his name was Mr Mutton, he said that he is well known in the area for his excellent milk. And it's only in the very hottest days of summer where it's perhaps possible for one or two customers to detect a slight hint of sourness in his milk. But that never happens, never, never in the winter, certainly not in chilly October. And yet, there was one October day when every second customer was calling Mr Mutton to complain that the milk was sour. Incredible, unthinkable, this never happens. And yet, these complaints went on for three days in succession. The first complaints were on Saturday, and they were about milk, which had been yielded the day before, the Friday. And that was the day after the fire at Winscale. The Guardian said that Mr Mutton is prepared to accept this could simply be coincidence. Now, on a more humorous note, I also found a poem in the Guardian, the Manchester Guardian, as it was known then, about the hurried and panicked disposal of contaminated windscale milk. I'll read it to you, but before I do, let me just explain the context, because it mentions Devon quite a lot. And of course, Devon is at the other end of England from windscale, so why are they worried down in Devon about windscale milk and windscale cattle? Well... I did a bit of research in the local newspaper archives and I think the Devon thing refers to a news story from, again, October 57, where a Devon farmer bought five cows from Ulverston. Ulverston being near the nuclear plant. He bought them after the accident. He wasn't aware they were from the contaminated area, but he bought them after the accident, took them down to Devon and sold them on at a cattle market in Exeter. It was then realised that those poor blighters might be contaminated. And so the police found out who'd bought the windscale cows and went to the doors of the farms after midnight to warn the, the buyers that their cows might be affected and so they could not sell any of their milk. One farmer who had bought one of the suspect cows was a Mrs Toms of a farm called Black Dog. She said, quote, They told me the cow I had bought might be affected by atomic radiation. 
and that I must pour the milk down a drain. We have 24 cows, and the milk from this particular animal has been going in the churn with the rest and sent to the factory. It's dreadful to think the authorities have allowed these animals to leave the affected area. Oh Mary, do not call the windscale kine, once radioactive kine, surcharged with iodine, from the atom factory. There is no need to send them up the line to Lakeland's Windy Lee. No Mary, you need not the cattle call in view of the outfall that leaked from Calder Hall, for now the Ministry announces that there is no risk at all to the Devon Creamery. So Mary, make Devonians understand that though all milk was banned, produced in Cumberland by herds of pedigree and rushed in sealed containers to the strand and dumped into the sea, go Mary, say the Ministry explains, no isotope remains, the colloids it contains with none will disagree. There is no need pour it down the drains, this milk they will guarantee. Oh Mary, do not call the dairy cows, for milking Lakeland cows the ministry allows, since it is atom free. Do not call home the cows that used to browse on Windscale's Windy Lee. Now I chose this topic because it was suggested to me. Remember that if you're a patron of my podcast through my patreon.com forward slash atomic hobo site i believe one of the benefits you have is that you can suggest or request a topic for a podcast episode so if you do have that benefit make use of it please do email me or get in touch with me through twitter and nominate an episode as long as it's feasible i'll do it remember you can reach me through twitter at julie a mcdowell on facebook under nuclear britain and i've also got a youtube channel which is also called the atomic hobo And if you want to support my work, please do take a look at my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Before I go today, let me give a quick thank you to the following patrons. Dan Breen, Simon Robinson, Lucy D, Eric, Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner and Hack Green Secret Nuclear Bunker. Thank you all for listening. I'm sorry if you could hear a storm howling outside. That's uh, Storm Kiara. There's nothing I can do about that. I don't have a a cool studio set up here. I'm just in my spare room. (laughs) Hope it's not bothered you too much. I tried to minimise it as far as possible by playing music in the background from X. They have provided all their music for this podcast. And you can find X on Twitter at XBandUK. 